Lord, we come to you this morning grateful for this week and all that this day represents as we record and remind ourselves of your mighty acts. I pray, Lord, you would give us, a, by the power of your Holy Spirit, a sense of wonder this week as we do so. And we would not walk away from here as just another Sunday. That you would move us in our hearts, and our minds, and our wills to yours. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Kimmy and I are freshly returned from the Gospel Coalition National Conference. I want to thank you for your support and your prayers. It was a wonderful time. And I bid you greetings from the Falls Church Anglican. Uh, they're halfway through their parking garage project. You know, parking garage. You know, they've raised $20 million like that. They are 40% less in attendance than they were five years ago. So we look at our numbers and we go, Lord, what are we doing? And John Yates looked at his numbers and said, Lord, what are we doing? I kind of said, well, I, I guess that's supposed to make me feel better, John. But the reality is we're all trying to be faithful. And so no matter what, it was great to be with them and with the plenary speakers and all 8,000 good friends that were there because it was, it, wa it wasn't, I wouldn't call it a refreshing time because we, we hit the ground running Monday morning bright and early and we arrived back late Wednesday night, but it was a wonderful time. But it's so good to see other Anglicans who are just striving to equip people, to love people, and to get encouraged in Jesus together. And no matter whether it was the plenary sessions as we were walking through Galatians together, or whether it was sitting around drinking coffee with, with John and, and just getting reacquainted, and also preparing for this service as we were doing then and now and looking at the liturgy for this week. Oh my goodness. It, 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 I, I got this feeling like I was in that Robert De Niro movie. You know, the movie in the 70s. I think it was Taxi Driver where he's, he's talking to himself. And he goes, you talking to me? You talking to me? All my Italian friends started that, you know, from, from mid-70s on. Every time you just kind of give them a hard time, they go, hey, 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 you talking to me? This text, these texts, this, this liturgy that, that the new prayer book commission is, is crafting for us, God looks at us and goes, hey, I'm talking to you. And we can do one of two things. We could be De Niro-like and say, you talking to me? Or we can be like a Christian and say, yes, Lord, I'm listening. So today we're just going to have a reflection. We're going to look at this great and mighty act of the cross and look at this as why the cross, what's the issue at hand, and what's the resolution? Why the cross? What's the issue, and what's the resolution? Well, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, why couldn't God just snap his fingers and say, you're forgiven, you know? His people all, you know, you're forgiven, it's fine. Well, you need to consider the nature of the words forgiveness and mercy. Mercy, forgiveness, means getting what I don't deserve when I've wronged somebody. 
let's say I've committed a crime. I'm in the courtroom, and the jury has pronounced that I'm guilty. I stand before the judge, and then the judge says and pronounces to me, innocent, you can go free. In that case, I haven't received the punishment that my acts deserve. Mercy's been extended to me by the judge at the expense of justice. Because mercy is always exercised at the expense of justice. Now, in every other worldview, and every other religion in the world, that is, in fact, a contradiction. All religions that I know of want to talk about God being merciful and God being just. But if their gods have forgiven us, then they've been merciful, but they haven't been just. And that's a contradiction right there. And they would say that. And that's true of every other worldview and every other world religion but one. Only in one is God both merciful and forgiving and at the same time holy and righteous. For it's at the cross of Jesus God exercised mercy, not at the expense of his justice, but through his justice. Jesus paid the price for our sin, a price that we're unable to pay for ourselves. And at the cross there was punishment, yes, but there was at the same time forgiveness. And the cross holds those two attributes together. If I loaned you my iPad, okay, here's a, an iPad, all right, and you bring it back to me next week and you say, Gene, I'm so sorry, I broke it. And I say to you, ah, don't worry about it, I'll deal with it, it's not a problem. I've shown you mercy, but there's still a price to be paid because these suckers cost at least $339 plus tax. There's a price that has to to be prayed, and whenever there's true forgiveness, it will always cost. Someone has to pay the price. And only in Christianity does God pay the price on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus paid the price of his life that each one of us might have a relationship with him, and might know him, and walk in that forgiveness with true mercy, but not at the expense of justice. It's through his justice carried out upon Jesus, upon the cross. So that brings us to, well, what's the issue that causes all this? Well, it's the overlapping one with that first point. It's our sin. It's the idea that each and every one of us are sinful and rebels to the core. You hear that word all the time, you know, or that phrase all the time, Jesus died for our sins, and so many people say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but my sin is not that bad. You know, I'm not as bad as Hitler, you know. You know, I'm not as bad as those guys. I'm not the, you know, the heroin addict on the street. Those are the bad people, you know. But that's a false understanding of what sin is and the nature of sin. And it doesn't square with our reality or with the scriptures, no matter where you find yourself this morning, it's vital that we understand our fallen nature, our guilt, which has been imputed to us. You know, the Bible never has that word imputed. The Bible doesn't have Trinity either. That word's not found in the Scriptures, but we know the Trinity is true. 
God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. But yet, we also know, and the Bible talks about us being clothed in our sin. It's imputed to us from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And that in each and every one of us is the desire to run my life my way. And everybody on the face of the planet lives like that. And now the world makes sense, doesn't it? When you have that understanding, you understand why each and every night you turn on the evening news, there's bad news. It explains why there's crime. It explains why there's fighting and disagreements in your office. It explains why there's brokenness in marriage. It explains why we can't just get things right. It explains why we don't have to teach our children to be bad. Right? They already know how to be bad. you got to teach them to be good, to behave. It's because of this understanding of original sin. We all got the disease, friends. We all want to run our lives our own way, and the Bible comes with a revelatory notion that we're all sinful and that we're in need of a Savior. Paul writes in Romans 3.10, There is no one righteous, no, not one, quoting the Psalms. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And Paul continues the argument further and says the wages of that sin is death. In other words, when we live our lives that way, the result is a life of eternal death. You see, our condition is worse than we think. We not only need to be forgiven for what we've done and what we do, we need to be forgiven for who we are. And there's where the good news comes into play. God's done it for us, and therefore you have the resolution to our problem. And so the question is, where's our posture? Because he's talking to every single one of us. And the reality is, we all find our identity in something. We always boast in something. We always validate our lives with something. We have to appeal to something. And the cross asks you, what are you boasting in? What do you, when you stand before God, what's going to qualify you at the end of your earthly life? Because so many people around not only the suburban West Shore neighborhoods that we live in, but all over the world say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. You know, I'm, I'm pretty good. And you ask them, well, if you were to stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you in, what would you say? And then they start to point out what they do. What they would do. You know, I, that's like instead of looking to the Lord, well, here's my golf score. <laughs> or I could, you know, the seashells that I collect in my retirement. Here's my seashells. You see, the question is, for each and every one of us, do we call ourselves a Christian, and yet can we say, I love you, Lord? See, we're not talking about romantic love between a husband and a wife or boyfriend and girlfriend. That's why I can't stand those, those Christian songs that you sing to Jesus as if he's your boyfriend or something. No, we're talking about so much more. And I am unashamed to say, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Father. I love you, Holy Spirit. So yeah, we, we did the Decalogue. The first four tablets are talking about that. Have no other gods before me. 
Jesus summed it up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And it's from that love we find, as Jonathan Edwards would say, our affections are changed. Things that were important to us aren't so important anymore. And all of a sudden, I find myself wanting to spend time with the Word. I want to spend some time in prayer. It doesn't mean I'm perfect at it. It doesn't mean, you know, I don't, it doesn't, not a struggle, but, but I find myself wanting to. You can call yourself a Christian, and yet, you only come when you have a duty on Sundays. You only come when your, your kids have a duty. You come Christmas and Easter. I come to be blessed for my birthday. And does that not turn church attendance into a work? Really? Because if you were to drive home and get in a car wreck, what would you say? Well, I went to church today, Lord, on my birthday. No, when you love, you find yourself changing. And I want to be with God's people. The very people God died for are important because that's where my community is found, and I know I can count on them because that's what happens. And you see, this is the resolution. That the Christian, according to the Scripture, boasts only, glories only, identifies only, and the love of God upon the cross. That's what we're trusting. And our life demonstrates that trust. It's salvation by grace and faith in Jesus Christ alone, but not that it remains alone. See, the entire Bible says you have to trust in something. A great example is Jeremiah 29, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. Isn't that beautiful? He's talking to us. Where's your trust? What are you boasting in? What's your identity? What, 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 what validates your existence? What are you trusting in to live your life? Where does your validation come from? Because Luther writes that when the chips are down, we instinctively point to something that we're trusting in. I'm a good husband. You know, I don't beat my wife. You know, I, I, I'm a good wife. I'm, you know, I love my children. I love my children so much, I put them in 5,000 activities. I've built my business. You can keep going, right? Luther says the devil will always outflank you if you do that. And we do do that. The whole self-esteem movement is that, you know, placing my confidence. You can do anything you put your mind to. Well, you know what? I would have been an awful NASA scientist. You know, I, I had to work really hard at math. Science I was okay in, but math, oh man, I would have been that astronaut that would have pushed the red button. You know, we're all dead. No, Gene Sherman wasn't going to be an astronaut, trust me. You can't do everything you put your mind to. And we do it on social media too, all those selfies. 
what is that about? You know, people just taking pictures, taking pictures of their food. I don't want to look at your food. So the question is, what are we putting our, our confidence, our trust in? Especially our young people on Snapchat, Twitter. It seems many of us, whether you're 15 or 105, we're putting our trust in things other than the love of God in Jesus Christ. And living our lives from that love. Letting the Lord shape us. So what does this mean for us? It means, number one, that we should seek only the applause of God. Above all, Paul says in Romans 2.29 that the true believer is the one who lives by the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Not being a, just a rule keeper or moral majority kind of person. For the true believer lives that his praise is not from man, but from God. That word praise could be also translated the applause. That we live to hear our Father say, well done. And yet so many people walk forward at a crusade, get confirmed because mom and dad want them to. And th they believe. But it just drips away and the applause just begins to fade. Because they they, they, they stopped looking at the cross. Do our lives reflect that applause that no other opinion really matters? And secondly, we need to see what Jesus did for us. We, we just don't feel the offense. We literally look at it. Because it's not just boasting in the fact that we've been saved. It's not just boasting in the fact that we're justified by faith. It's more. It's seeing that he did all this for you. He was beaten, spat upon, mocked, jeered. He was jeered so that we could get the applause. He heard, depart from me. So that we could hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. See, the only opinion that counts looks at you and sees 100% perfect in Jesus Christ. We think, well, he looks at me in 85%. No. He sees A plus, brother. A plus plus, sister. Because you place your trust in Jesus. It's more than being a kind person. It's exhibiting kindness, reflecting the kindness of Jesus to our neighbors. See, it's no longer, money's no longer your identity. You can just give it away. Love relationships are no longer your identity, for you live for the one who loves you like this. You don't melt down when somebody disagrees with you. Because you're living for the applause of God. You're confident. They disagree with you. Okay. What's new? See, we reflect that because we're living for the applause and we're viewing the cross. My friends, this service, this week is all about that. May we arrive next Sunday having 
zeroed in, focused in upon God's love for us upon the cross in this way. In closing, Dick Lucas shared a great story. Dick was the, was the rector of St. Helens Bishopsgate for many, many years, from 1960, I think, to 1993, 30-something years as the rector there. And he shared the story that in 1955, Billy Graham came to Cambridge, England. Now, you need to understand something about English culture. Oxford and Cambridge are the Harvard and Yale of Great Britain. The best of the best of the best minds go to Oxford and Yale. And Billy Graham, okay, what? Oxford and Cambridge. Thank you. I'm trying to correct me, please. You know, we're a small crowd. We can do that. Um, and Billy Graham was coming, and so all the intellectuals of England were saying, what does this backwoods, redneck, American fundamentalist have to say to our best and brightest minds? And, you know, and Billy knew they were saying this, so he, he got a little intimidated, so he started to really polish up on his apologetics. And so it was a five-night crusade, like Monday through Friday. And so Monday through Thursday, he gave these eloquent, really good apologetic defense of the gospel talks. And very few people responded. So after, you know, Wednesday, Thursday night, he said, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just going to preach on the cross. I'm going to preach on the blood of Jesus all the way out the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And he did that. And Dick Lucas says, dear old Billy, preached the gospel that final night. Thousands of students came forth. 30 years later, in the mid-80s, Dick is meeting the, the dean of the cathedral in Birmingham. He said, tell me about your journey. You know, what, 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 how did you come to faith? And the dean says, oh, well, you know, I came to faith in 1955. He said, where? Uh, Cambridge. Where in Cambridge? At Billy Graham crusade. What night? The final night. He said, well, what was it for you that Billy Graham said? And how did God speak to you? He said, you know, I walked away from that night only reflecting on God loved me that much to die upon the cross for me. My friends, God loved you this much, to die upon the cross, to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death you deserve to die so you can live the life you don't deserve to live. Because he is our Savior and offers it to you. And the rest of the service is all about that. We're going we're gonna to hear the solemn reproaches. This is the prayer book committee put these back in. You know, it was an ancient tradition that on Palm Sunday and Good Friday, the church would hear how God's people have always messed up. And our corporate reply is, Lord, have mercy. And then we'll hear the exhortation reminding us to examine ourselves. Don't take communion lightly. If you're not willing to live under his reign, don't take it. Stay in your seat. I'm, I'm not going to bother you. But if you come forward, what you're saying is, I'm in. I am in. I need the mercy and grace and the gospel. Because it's not about the perfection of your performance. 
It's about his for you. So come, because he invites you to the table. I'm not the one who invited you. He did. And he loves you this much. And as we come to the confession, let's pray it together. We'll pause a little longer, allowing us to reflect upon what we need to get right with the Lord. And let's do it. And just use the liturgy today to help guide us into a new walk with Jesus. And if you have any questions, I'm, I'm up here in the front every Sunday. Open Q&A. Got a question? Got a comment? Got a complaint? Come on. I'd love to hear it. Let's talk. Because we're a learning community. That's what we do. Skeptics and believers coming together to form this learning community under the cross of Jesus Christ. And so I invite you to a holy, holy week that we would walk out Easter Sunday transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful once again for this day and that you did it all for us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Each and every one of us recognize to various degrees that you're talking to us. And our prayer, our posture is to change. If there's any one of us gathered here this morning from defensiveness to reception, and we would recognize, oh Lord, I receive you. I trust in you. I boast in you. I glory in you alone and above all. And that we would come to your table this morning with open hands, receiving you, Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, that this Holy Week would be one of great transformation because of that acknowledgement of that fact. For in Jesus' name I pray.